Day two. Welcome back to the channel, guys. I'm joined again by Tachiro. Good to have you again, sir. Yeah, good to be here. It's been a while, but we just caught up offline and in a different language, and I think we're ready to, uh, as in the Dutch, we say Lille. Mm -hmm. yeah. I don't know what is the English equivalent, but I'm um, going to give a masterclass on yapping. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> We spoke before about a proposed topic, but I think you might want to go into a different direction. So, oh, I'm maybe let you I, propose. I, I've been watching a lot of uh, Slavoj Žižek. You know that the, the dumpster diving philosopher who is completely all over the place and then yeah. suddenly brings in some point from some corner of the universe. Yeah. It, it kind of feels. I don't know if you play chess, but um, no. There's this joke in chess where. Um, where the bishop of the enemies, so the other player's bishop, fe always feels like it's coming completely out of nowhere. Like mm. you always overlook bishops on the other side of the on the other side of the board. That's that's kind of how I view Slavoj Žižek as a philosopher. Then so, he's just like you're just talking, just saying normal stuff, and suddenly from the other side of the board, he just brings in this bishop mm. to like completely change the board. But anyway, in in an ode to him and his dumpster diving philo philosophical ways, I wanted to start by telling you about a dream that i had last awesome. night and <laughs> and i wanted to see if you have any interpretation of this of this dream you knowing me and seeing what you what you see in this dream so um i had a dream that i went on a ski vacation so we got in the car with me and my aunts my mom and some of my aunts and then um we arrived at this roadside restaurant and I had to go to the bathroom. And when I went into the restaurant, a lot of people said happy. And then some name of some Christian uh, holiday or celebration that I had never heard of. And they kept saying it in Spanish or something like that. So it was happy and then the name of the holiday. So I thought, oh, okay, it must be some Christian holiday. And then I went into the bathroom um, and I started praying because I just instinctively knew that's what you were supposed to do on this holiday. And then while I was praying with my eyes closed, um, when I opened my eyes again, I saw that the door was open and that all of my aunts had been watching me pray for this Christian holiday. Uh, and I felt ashamed. And then I woke up feeling ashamed of praying in the bathroom for this Christian holiday that I'd never heard of. Oh. So what is your um, your first <laughs> interpretation of this uh, dream? <laughs> well, I'd have to have a bit more information. These ants of yours... Mm -hmm. are they like anti-christian or do you think there's a reason they were uh one of my aunts is is ismaili so a muslim follower of ismail i see and um the others are are agnostic or or leaning towards atheism um so like ever so slightly agnostic but none of them have ever mentioned christianity or religion being a taboo or something to be ashamed of or something okay okay like that. So that so may I, be your subconscious filling so, that gap. Yeah. yeah, maybe so. Why do you think you you felt like you should pray? And why did you pray, do you think? Um I in the dream I think I prayed because I knew it was the right thing to do. As if, as if it was some instinctual calling to pay respect to the restaurant and to the people that came in there and that yeah. I um wanted to just respect their tradition and i also knew it was the right thing to do it's not like how some people who eat meat they go to eat with a vegetarian household and then they don't eat meat out of respect um but they don't think that being vegetarian is necessarily the right thing to do well some of them of course yeah right? 
they just do it out of respect. It didn't feel like that. It felt like it was genuinely the right thing to do. Ah. Like I genuinely should pray because it was the right thing to do in that situation. Okay, that's very cool. Do you ever pray yourself? Um, I wouldn't really refer to it as... I, I don't know. We would have to have a more clear definition of praying. Why don't you tell I, me what you do? I meditate a lot, um, uh-huh. usually before sunrise and after sundown. Um, and I express a plan of either what I'm going to do that day in the morning uh, during my meditation. And I um, acknowledge some things that I'm thankful for. Uh, mm-hmm. in that day and usually those are things like i'm thankful for having the strength today to realize what i should do or to have the strength to to do this task that i've been um kind of scared to do or that i've been hesitant to execute things like that so it's yeah. a a moment of planning and of and of gratitude usually um and i do it sitting on my knees with okay. my eyes closed okay i don't know if that's praying to you it's not necessarily directed to anything or anyone yeah i was gonna say who are you thanking yeah i i don't i don't know because i don't necessarily <laughs> i don't necessarily put my foot down and say there is something out there that mm-hmm. who i have to thank for all of this yeah um but i'm also not sure if all of these things are given to me by, by myself actually i kind of know that these things aren't given to me from yes. from the inside Okay, what inspired you to do this practice? Um, I went through a phase, I would say a year ago, where I was really looking for things in different religions to to make my own, to to get as a habit. Um, and this was one of the things I got from, from Islam. They do it five times or six times or three times, depending on their um, interpretation of the belief. But um, before sunrise and after sundown was, was one of the, one of the rituals from there that I thought would be really valuable to myself. Yeah. Um, and I did that also to give some routine to myself, to give some routine to my days. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think from that orientation, I started to, uh, make it sort of a planning habit, meditating about what I wanted to do that day uh, or that week. That's interesting. I'm thinking about the dream. Say you're going on a ski trip. And you're stopping mm. in a restaurant, so you're kind of like in semi-unfamiliar territory. And you're engaging in a practice that is also kind of unfamiliar territory. And your familiar territory, which are your aunts, are causing you to feel shame for that. I'm not sure where I'm going with it, but I'm just trying to see what symbolically these things mm. could represent. But it's, it's at least... Uh, I think it's it's quite plain, at least, the, the emotions you feel. Because you felt that it was right and you felt that, that, that you were ashamed. Yeah, yeah. Do you, do you, in general, feel more emotional during dreams than in real life? I would say so. I, I usually, I wouldn't consider myself an emotional acknowledger. A lot okay. of people go through life exactly knowing how they feel about things at a certain time. But um, I talked to my dad about this, actually, uh, because he listened to the previous episode we did. Cool. Um, and he then also uh, pointed out that I usually only know how I feel about things maybe two or three years after they happen. Oh. Um, and that's usually why I look on the past with a sort of melancholy or somberness, yeah. um, because I then only start to realize that I felt 
some sort of anxiety or sadness or somberness about things that happened in the past. Mm. But um, so overall, I would say I'm much more aware of emotions in dreams and they are much more overwhelming. And in real life, they're not overwhelming at all, with one exception which is when I watch Leaves of the Vine from Avatar The Last Airbender. I can only uh, agree with you on that. At least <laughs> I can relate to it. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. That is enough to bring any man to tears, I would say. Absolutely. Okay. Okay, that's very interesting. It's interesting stuff to work with. Is, is it something you've been thinking about more recently? Is that maybe why you dreamt about it? Like prayer or religion in general? Or do you think it's just more spontaneous that it popped up? I would say so. It's It's been starting to play a bigger role in my life. For my birthday, one of my dear friends gave me a Quran, actually. Um, oh, yeah. And um, um, I've been reading some of it. And um, the problem with me with many of these scriptures is I would want to be a fundamentalist. I would want everything in there to be completely true and for me to agree with it 100%. Yeah. Um, so for me, it's religions is a little bit black and white in that way that yeah. i really want it to be completely true but i don't think it is so that's why i don't conform to that religion or idea mm. whereas i would say the vast majority of believers don't think that way they will read the bible and see things they agree with and don't and still call themselves a christian yeah um, i have a little bit of trouble doing that for myself yeah um I would really want want everything in there to align with my thoughts, but it just doesn't. That's just it. That's yeah. it can't work like that. There's no book that could have more than a billion people align with it a hundred percent and think it's completely true and agree with everything in there. That would mm. be a complete miracle, which the Bible maybe already is. But um, yeah, I know what you're saying. I think it's the well in Islam, if the idea is that all of which is written down is directly from God. And I think a lot of Christians believe that too. And that is the case for them. Um, I really struggle with it simply because it's written down. So that means it is in this reality, let's say. Mm -hmm. The pen makes it thus. Yeah, because <laughs> I, I listened to um, to the episode with your brother, with Aaron, mm -hmm. and he uh, quoted, I don't know who, who said this originally, but... Um, it was about seeking truth and about the the yeah. kind of path or goal of seeking truth. Mm -hmm. And he also said um, that truth can cannot be spoken because it comes from uh, from an idea that you have a feeling which is then translated into language within your own head, which already leaves so many kind of faults in language of things and feelings that are hard to put into words. And then when you speak it or write it down, it again loses meaning, not only because it's spoken with intonation and with meaning, but also because of the interpretation on the person on the other side. Yeah. So definitely a lot of that can have can already have been lost. I mean the the Quran says that it has been dictated by the angel Gabriel to Muhammad and that he was mostly illiterate Muhammad at the time that when he heard it he couldn't write or read. Mm. Um and 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 I read an introduction interrupt introductory thing to the quran and it said that this is one of the big miracles behind the quran is that it was dictated to somebody who who could barely read or write um but it is worth questioning like you say it's hard because it's still a, it's it's been dictated to someone and then written down which yeah. already can have a huge impact on how e even just this direct 
alliteration of of yeah. this dictated thing can have a huge impact, even if it's just between one person, one person writing down what was dictated. Yeah, absolutely. But it's why I'm interested in stories because stories are not, let's say, as black and white as maybe a rule book is, let's say. So a story could refer to, could refer beyond itself, similar to poetry. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, I can, I can much more closely understand this idea of saying the story is true. Because, you know, if, if you look at it materialistically, is the story true when you can like forensically analyze all the parts of the story and you can like archaeologically confirm things. Mm-hmm. But I think a story being true is much more, let's say, symbolic. And I don't mean like met- a metaphorical or metaphoric. I'm not sure what you say in English, but really s- symbolic. So it's true on a higher level. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it can be true on, on different levels as well, like psychologically and physically and then spiritually. Um, so, yeah, I'm not sure where I'm going with that, but that that's just, just some uh, some food well, for your thoughts. Well, that's why this is a masterclass on yapping. Just yeah. So I'm just saying things that, that only make sense to the two of us. No, but, I, th- um... <laughs> I think it will make some sense. <laughs> I hope so. I, I hope so because I I read some of the comments on um, on the episode that we did and I was yeah. I was quite impressed or I would say blown away by the level of intelligence and intellectual level of the people who are listening to this podcast which I think I voiced at the start of last recording that that I already said I never agree with something for more than like fifteen minutes mm. um, and then. Um, Apparently that goes for a lot of your listeners as well as well yeah. that were listening to this and pointed out things like little gaps in arguments, little gaps in, in logic. Um, and it was really, really valuable. And it also reminded me of how underdeveloped my skill is with the philosophical process. Mm. So there was one specific uh, viewer who commented, I think they were a part of the organization you refer to a lot, the, the little corner or what is it called? Yeah. It's, it's like a, it's called this little corner mm-hmm. and it's basically it's not really an organization as much as it is a sort of sort of a growing community of people that are thinking about some of these topics things like religion and metaphysics and stuff like mm-hmm. this but yeah continue yes yeah, so, so somebody from this um collective or community yeah. uh, commented on um the progression of the view of of the bible and and i i refer to the bible as a value set and mm. they commented on how we have only decided that it is a value set much later in history that there has been a complete turnaround of how we interpret and think about um scriptures and writings like this yeah. uh, and that did make me think maybe i should be a little bit more careful when i'm on this podcast speaking about this kind of thing but it also made me think this is extremely valuable these people yeah. commenting these things so maybe i should be the complete opposite just <laughs> let go of all control and yeah. just say say everything that comes to my mind and and have your viewers kind of carry carry the intellectual yeah. interpretation of the of the things that i yap about <laughs> well i think it's always good to like watch your words in the sense that you um really voice what you think accurately mm-hmm. but to not self-censor in a sense that you're so afraid of uh, being wrong or something because we're always wrong in a sense that's why i like these podcasts because it's such a long form um format mm-hmm. that there's always going to be things that are wrong but if you listen to the whole thing you realize that we have no malintent 
we're just trying to understand <laughs> reality yeah. let's say uh-huh. um, yeah maybe yeah. we're trying harder than like joe rogan for example probably <laughs> this like he's got the biggest podcast on earth and sometimes i hear him say things I'm like you definitely did not give this any thought <laughs> or then he remembers an older podcast he's like yeah i was completely stoned <laughs> it's like, yeah so if like, he doesn't Jamie, have to pull care, up that video of a bear fighting a coyote or something. yeah <laughs> yeah amazing um so that's that's an example but i like the middle path it's very good <laughs> I also like the the complete opposite way the the Andrew Huberman type podcast where it's just this deep dive into into the neurological side and, and yeah. the, the biomedical side of 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 these thoughts that may come up into our minds. Yeah, if that's the topic, I think it's valuable to be that diligent as he is. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. But um, speaking of things that are um, wrong, <laughs> that are voiced in podcasts that are wrong. No, I'm just kidding. But um, recently we had a conversation in which you mentioned um, this idea that when we let go of the values of religion within the Western framework or Western um, kind of mindset, that usually the room that is left is filled in with things that are worse or that are more dangerous. Um, could you elaborate a little bit on on that idea? Oh, well or maybe i've completely misrepresented it and you no, you, you represented me. it very well i think it's uh it's an argument i think about christianity specifically because a lot of western civilization is based off of that or at least that's the latest update of course christianity grew out of judaism mm-hmm. so that's that's the basis let's say perhaps even more fundamental goes back even further but um I think, yeah, I think I believe, I believe that once we stop participating in that story, once we stop believing the story of Christ and stop, let's say, with that going to church. And I'm, I'm saying all of this while I myself struggle extremely hard to, to go to church. And um, I'm not sure if that's the answer to all of this. So that's just like a, a side note while I say all of this. But seemingly it's the case that a lot of the values that we have are very christian in the sense that we value all human life we think self-sacrifice is like the highest thing we can do whereas if you for example go back to roman times um caesar could boast about killing millions of people uh that's not that wasn't a bad thing you know now we have to kind of apologize for it and and so a lot of those those values love your neighbor as you love yourself, all these things, they seem to come forth from this story and us believing that that story is true. And I think a, a point that Jordan Jordan Peterson makes in his Maps of Meaning book, which you saw me listen to at some point in the gym, I remember you asking me <laughs> what I was reading and I was trying to vaguely explain to you and then I realized you knew who he was, mm. so I didn't have to explain as much. <laughs> um, he makes that point that when that stops, the values go away as well. And I think that's empirically true in the sense that right now we're living in a time where I think a lot of the most prominent and younger ideas are uh, relating to the idea that truth is not really real and everything downstream from that you can call um, postmodern or I don't know exactly Wait, what name you, you want to call. Can you backtrack a little bit to that 
sentence, the the truth is not really real part, and elaborate a little bit what what you mean by that. Uh, what I mean by that is that there's no such thing as objective truth. At least I don't really like this word objective because you're already operating within subject-object metaphysics. It's a very dual way of thinking, but that's simply one of the main one of the main ways in which we think. But this idea that for example, violence, we were, we were maybe going to speak about violence today, right? So um, mm -hmm. murder or even rape is not wrong in that view um, in certain, certain situations, let's say. So the hero, you know, the hero is also a murderer often, you know, the hero myth mm -hmm. is like the hero kills yeah. a bunch of people. Like that's what we see with modern modern day movies a lot like the hero like john wick kills about thousands yeah he of kills people. like 40 people or something in one <laughs> in one scene mm -hmm. it's crazy um and so that 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 morality is much more uh fluent let's say that mm -hmm. that a lot a lot of things that people say these days are also relating to this where they say yeah i'm just gonna speak my truth mm -hmm. it's like if you really want to do the right thing listen to your own heart you know stuff like this yeah that's a very um I think postmodern way of thinking where, where truth is is not really real in the sense that it you think it has this like deep tie to uh kind of the individualist revolution where we've started valuing the individual so highly i think it definitely um influenced it i'm not sure where it started exactly but and i'm not i'm also not saying that it's fully bad thing this 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 more individualistic approach or this more not completely trusting what has been said before because i think the opposite is like completely trusting tradition and completely trusting the books that we spoke about to give us everything we know about morality but now that we are we are left to our own devices we are left to discover what is actually true mm -hmm. um or like what is true to us again that's 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 again that that frame of thinking i think that that happened when we stopped really believing um the Christian story, among others, really. So yeah, if, is there anything else you want me to zoom in on? I can continue on this as well. The truth yeah, thing. I uh, think there's much more to be said about it. So mm -hmm. let's um, uh, let's go to the um, to that part about you said it. It can leave a void. It can leave a void, which can be filled in with all manner of of destructive things. Yeah. Um, what kind of things do you have in mind that would be worrisome or would even be plausible or or in line with human ideal ideologic or rhetoric to fill in that gap? Yeah, well, I think that um, very quickly, once you let go of those values, it becomes hard to argue for certain things that we've held as being true for so long, like human rights. I'm not sure how you argue human rights. Oh, it's human rights are a terrible concept, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Like, I think a smart person to to a very smart person who has no like background in in anything, try to get ChatGPT to argue for human rights, for example. I, I would love to ask this this system how they would do that. Um, mm -hmm. Another thing is, let's say, the idea that sleeping around is not a very bad thing, like just sleeping with whoever you please or poly polygamy polyamorous uh, behavior i'm not going to be the judge on this i'm just saying that these things can pop up like it's it's not good or bad it's just a new thing that we're trying mm -hmm. um yeah or war for example 
you can justify war in many different ways. A lot of people have done that in the past. I think those are things that, that are left then. It becomes all a much more relative, let's say. And I think if you approach reality purely from a relative perspective and don't take the absolute into account, you might get lost somewhere. Okay. Yeah, I have some trouble um, discerning which of the, why some of these things would be um, a religious or, or rather why they would be perpendicular to some religious teachings um with the biggest one being war obviously mm -hmm. with obviously i am i'm a big opponent of the notion that um people who uh declare wars in the name of religion are good believers um because the scripture might might very clearly say do not kill um and then people start a war so then they do something that is completely perpendicular to their scripture um, yeah. So then it's difficult to to say that they really used religion to justify this war if if their scriptures are completely perpendicular to their saying. But mm -hmm. I'm also very opposed to um, saying that all good things about religion are because of religion and all bad things in religion are because of other reasons, because of problems with people instead of with the religion. Yeah. Um, so uh, from that standpoint, I find it a bit difficult to really say that some of the things that you've mentioned are or can be attributed to religion or not, or to the religious scriptures or thinking or or to more like atheist thinking. Yeah, I think, of course, reality is very messy. And I do think you can get to a pretty clean morality, for example, by really thinking about it and taking a bit from, from different places. But I think on a large scale, it is hard to get a society that, that values the things that we value, a lot of the things that we value now still, um, without a unifying story. And I don't think you can get that without religion. That that's all I'm thinking like on a, on a large, on a large scale, because then I think we're going to have to try to figure it out for ourselves. And I think most people, will not be able to do that. I I agree on the or I instinctive I instinctively agree on the destructive side, um, where I think that it really is possible to have this unity um coming from a non-religious story, or it depends on what you define as religion, but that you can really have a huge unity based on a hateful idea um, based on for example in the u.s the idea that there is an enormous amount of terrorist activity in iraq um, fueled by saddam hussein and weapons of mass destruction i think it's quite easy in some way or easy for some people to really unify people um, working into this instinctive idea of fear or danger so in that sense i really don't think that um you need religion to have a unification of thought, uh, yeah. especially if you want to achieve something destructive. Mm -hmm. um, but when it comes to doing good, I think it it might be a, a lot more difficult. What yeah. do you what do you convince people of of this communal basal instinctive feeling to get them to collectively do something that we would perceive as good? Yeah. Um, and then and then more of an instinctive good, not some Kantian or 
or mm-hmm. <laughs> or Nietzsche idea of good, but something that we would instinctively think is is good. Yeah, so I, I, I don't I don't know what what you would have to tell someone to to get this idea. I mean, there's a lot of cases in which a lot of good things are still done from this destructive idea. Um, or or still out of a place of fear, a lot of cooperation because of the fear of famine or a lot of cooperation because of the fear of being attacked from outside. So people have technological advances, um, things like that. But I wonder if there's anything you can do that speaks to a positive state of mind within people that can get them to unify and really achieve something good. I'm sure there are things, but they're just not coming to mind as easily as something like fear or destruction. Yeah, and that's, that's why I think that the well the christian story but i'm I, i'm not exclusive in this sense i just it's what i've gr- grown up with but it it provides a lot of that where there is there is a way in which love can be the most important thing in your worldview and that i don't know how you get there without an idea of let's say an underlying mm-hmm. You can call it God and that God being good. Because I think for, if you just analyze nature or whatever, if you just look around, you could look at it with so many different lenses, ideological lenses, like, oh, this is all about power. Oh, no, this is all about sex. Yeah. <laughs> or no, this is actually all about love. Or, you know, you can or do a lot of just different complete things. stochastic absurdity or whatever you want to believe. Yes. Yeah. And I do think that there might be a way of viewing the world that is more true and that's kind of a controversial thing to say i i would say so yeah <laughs> yeah it's it's very controversial you... especially if you look at, at philosophy how, how differently people think about it so i'm aware of that <laughs> i still think it's true okay um and do you have any idea of what that basis could be of worldview that that could be more true or or maybe there's just one that pops up that is more true than a different one that you have in mind well my brother often speaks about this and it's definitely not his idea but um, yeah, he's he's a big truth fan isn't he <laughs> i think so i think he is but i think that's strategic it's for his own uh you know <laughs> but um yeah i think he speaks about the hermeneutics of suspicion which is like a, a way of interpreting reality with a suspicious lens. So that's what a lot of conspiracy theories do, for example. But it's also what, what Marxist theory does. I think, um, you know, the greedy capitalist, this, this is what you're trying to do. Or in a conspiracy theory, you might attribute a lot of the world's problems to a small group of people who are orchestrating it to be mm-hmm. so, and they're trying to kill you. And he says another way of viewing the world or interpreting it is the hermeneutics of beauty um, to really see beauty in a lot of different things. Uh, and you could say, well, this is just arbitrary. These are arbitrary ways of looking at the world. But I very intuitively believe that um, beauty as opposed to suspicion can can make your view of the world deeper and deeper the longer you look at it let's say the the way you can fall in love with someone you can fall in love with someone for decades for a lifetime and that that depth of love will only deepen and deepen and deepen whereas i think the suspicion it's very shallow um 
And I think reality is very deep and I think it's fractal. I think it's layered. And I think beauty um, and truth and goodness, the transcendentals, I think they reveal more of that. And that's why I intuitively would say that they're more true. Ah, so you think that's what Plato was on to? <laughs> I don't know. Looking into the sun. Maybe. Of absolute beauty, truth, and justice, I think are the three, right? Goodness. Oh, yeah. Goodness. Yeah, I recently did a talk with this, with my brother about this. Mm-hmm. That's very int- I don't know very much about it, but it's very intuitive that I, that I geared toward that. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I I I grasp the idea. Um it makes instinctive sense to me. Yeah. But, um but I'm not sure in reality how how applicable this idea is, although very interesting. Um another thing I wanted to talk about before we get into ter- into territory where it's way over my head. Um <laughs> <laughs> is um I saw this thing on social media. All horrible stories start this way, right? I saw this yeah. on social media. Yeah, all yeah. fallacies start in, this, start in this way. Um, but I saw a post on social media where, uh, and the, and this ties into this theory based on suspicion of mine, which is mm-hmm. why why I thought about it um, out of this suspe- yeah, suspicious worldview. Um, I saw this post and it was of a, woman um documenting a day in her life where she took care of a bunch of errands and a bunch of other stuff and taking care of kids and her dog or whatever just things that normal people do and um the most responded thing to this video was um don't you have a job don't you have work to do why aren't you working and then with the connotation of you're being lazy you are not contributing to society um which to me was very unique reminiscing of of how this kind of thing worked in my mother's family and well mostly my mother's mother's family um and also how it used to work within western society as a whole where there was not some sort of inherent expectation for a lot of women to to have a nine to five job or any type of job where in a way, the value of a woman was not tied to how many hours of office work she would do a day or or any other type of day. It was not expected for, of her to have a job at all in a lot of situations. Mm-hmm. And this view is still present in a lot of households, of course, and a lot of um, kind of branches, especially in, in some branches of US and Eastern European living, um, where maybe this notion of women having to have a job or else being useless and lazy uh, has not been as perfect as pervasive but it's so unique to me that this complete turnaround in how we see the role of women and whether they have to work in in office situations or situations like this has has made this complete turnaround in just the last maybe 50 60 years or maybe a little bit more but not not a lot more um it's it's really crazy to me how how this cultural phenomenon has has changed the way we look at half of our population yeah uh, an incredibly integral half of course um can be so radically changed in such a short period of time Mm -hmm. um and it really makes me think or makes me question how many of these other things and traditions and and things i think about or see as true will have completely changed in another 50 years as well 
if something as basil as as or as basic as <laughs> basil is the spice but um yeah. the herb but if something as basic as um as women working um so basic the society as women working can be completely changed in 50 years that could say a lot about just the general security of things that we believe in today mm-hmm. um and things that are useful to us as society yeah um and but in this specific case and this is where my suspicion comes in um i think that this uh, you may correct me or interrupt me at any time because we're going into a bit of like a wonky territory oh, here on very unstable ground so maybe a lot to comment on but um i think that in a way <clears throat> the acceptance of this idea that women should work within western society is pushed by stakeholders in our economy um I think that before this revolution, um, there were a lot of instances in which kind of the air of capitalism in the West was at its peak or at its height, where it was completely possible for a man to uh, work a nine to five um, and come home and be able to sustain a family of four with that income. Now, if you look around, there are very few households who can who can do that, who can be financially stable or have financial security with just one person working, with just a man working nine to five, especially an uneducated man without college degree or without some specific trade skill or or other speciality that he has. Um, and so I think that in a way, this idea of women having to work and women working is being good is also used by stakeholders in capitalist economy to mask the fact that now we need to work much more and more people need to work and able in order to have the same financial security yeah um so i really wonder if that's true because this is something that you would you would find in (laughs) in maybe some like late night conspiracy yeah a a bunch of guys sitting around a table being completely high and thinking about the economy yeah and just spouting complete nonsense but i wonder if there's any truth to this and and where the the mistakes in reasoning lie um or or whether this is even much deeper and is more to dig into in this territory okay so you're asking if there's truth to the idea that stakeholders in this economy are trying to entrust this idea upon the culture that women should work more is that what you're saying yeah yeah in order to kind of compensate or hide or mask the fact that the economy is in truth declining, or at least the benefits for the normal household are declining of the capitalist system. Well, I think it's definitely, if it is true, I think it's more of a symptom of the times, let's say. Um, I think it goes so, so deep. The money thing, I've spent a lot of time on it. One of my favorite podcasts is called the What is Money podcast. And um, I actually find economics very interesting, but um, not the modern type of economics that is being taught in universities. It's more of a 19th century, early 20th century type of theories. But what I would say about it is that first, what popped to mind was- That was a very neat way of saying I'm a communist. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely not. (laughs) I believe in early 20th century's idea on capital and economy. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's funny because Marx came at the same time as these guys. So (laughs) it's kind of like, um, yeah, it's kind of weird. Don't you think that a lot of them came from Germany as well? Like Germany, 
they, they all, all of the worst came worst ideas came from germany and france i wonder why that is but <laughs> and england and england. and england but maybe maybe earlier even from england but yeah yeah before they came from italy they came from <laughs> in europe at least the terrible yeah. ideas no but i i do think it's true in a sense but because right now if you're thinking about um let's say prosperity as production how much we are producing there is just we're just in much worse times economically in many ways than we were 50 years ago so that that is true i think and at the same time to recover from that many things could happen but one of the things that you could do is just try to make much more uh, to produce mm -hmm. much more let's say yeah. because it's just simple supply and demand so in that sense, that's true, but it goes so much deeper than that because what a lot of people don't realize is one of the main reasons we are doing so badly economically is that our money is being completely corrupted and it's been so for 50 years. I think that's one of the main reasons, to be honest. You mean the, the place it ends up, our capital, or rather um, in a different way? Well, money right now, mm -hmm. um, central banks can create it if they like or they can call it quantitative easing. So they have the opportunity to create more units of currency. So if we're back to the supply and demand thing, they can enhance, increase supply as much as they would like. And in the last couple of years, that has increased like, like nothing else. Like it's absolutely crazy. It's the same thing that happened in, in Weimar, Germany. And then you're obviously gonna have to start working a lot more um, because your money is being diluted. So, I think it's quite a, a simple idea, but it takes a while to to wrap your head around fully. It's it's basically like your money is leaking almost. Like, you know, if your money is leaking, you want to spend it as quickly as possible. Mm. So it's more of a short-term idea. And also, if you're making more money, then if all things remain the same, prices will go up and wages will go up. But prices usually go up quicker than wages. Anyway, this has been going on for, for decades and decades and decades. And before that, money was tied, before the 70s, let's say, money was tied to gold. To the golden standard, yeah. That exactly. I got rid of. And gold, you don't create out of thin air. Gold, you have to mine. And mining is a very cost-worthy endeavor. So I think actually a lot of that, a lot of those problems come forth from that. And then afterwards, you're like, oh, fuck, women actually should work more because that's the only way we're going to, maintain these households and that's the only way we're going to keep uh, producing children for the next generation and so on and so forth so yeah actually it's it's quite a dark mm -hmm. <laughs> thing to think about but um, now we are entering into an era where I think not fully but in part due to this we are starting to value the feminine we are starting to devalue the feminine by trying to measure women's success by the masculine. Let's say, if you know what I'm, if you know what I'm saying. So we're we're expecting them to work, and that's how where they get their worth. Um, and same for men, to be honest. Like we are very, like if you want to say something bad about capitalism, I think it becomes bad when you take it as an ideology in a sense. That's where it really goes wrong because then it's then your value becomes quantifiable by the amount of money you make mm -hmm. whereas i think as a system it can work very well but it's it's just like taking anything else as your god if it's technology if it's health um something will go wrong so i'm riffing a lot on this i know it's, it's a lot of scattered thoughts but if you want to respond to anything 
or if you have any new ideas, then I'd love to hear them. Um, have you read any Yanis Varoufakis? No, I don't know who that is. He's uh he used to be the minister of finance of Greece. Um, okay, I think it may have been called <laughs> minister of of economics or yeah, yeah. or monetary planning or something like that. But it's that kind of idea, and um, he wrote a book called Techno Feudalism. And um, he talks about this idea, which I hope to represent accurately, um, that we have progressed beyond capitalism within at least the West um, to a kind of technological form of feudalism. And um, one basis that this idea is built on is that um, the role of Internet in our economy has become so incredibly large uh, to the point where many companies that are based off of the internet are the biggest companies in the world, like Amazon, Google, Facebook. Mm -hmm. um, and um, because there are these companies that kind of control the web, that have this insane impact on how the web is, is organized and structured and represented and monetized, like through Google ads and through Amazon, yeah. um, that um, we've come to this sort of feudal state in which we pay for our place on the internet. Um, because internet has become this kind of basic human need in a in a sense, or some even say basic human right, which <laughs> ties into the human rights thing. Yeah. But um, um, that the internet is so essential, and that there are these few companies controlling the entire flow and structure of the internet, um, that we're basically in this feudal system where we pay for our place on the internet. We pay to use the internet. We pay for our place on the internet. The things that are presented to us on the internet are are very strictly controlled in a sense and what we see on the internet is controlled by these companies that we've become kind of this feudal uh, surf to this landlord system um, and that this kind of goes away from the idea of the free market of free market capitalism where you can go anywhere and offer your service and, and your jobs that the monopoly of these internet companies have made it so that this idea has degraded in quality and that rather it's more of a feudal system where we can only offer our services to these couple huge frameworks that that allow us to make yeah. use of the internet um which i think is is really interesting and he says that a big problem with the idea with this I idea or this system is that all of these companies that control the internet, with the exception of one, he says as a joke, uh, are American. So he says, for example, Apple, Google, Microsoft, Facebook are some huge ones um, that that in some sense literally control the internet because of their cloud computing services, right? Like uh, Microsoft Azure and Am Amazon Web Services run almost every service that that you use in life, mm -hmm. like Netflix and Spotify and things like that all run on their web infrastructure uh he says the only one that we have is in europe is only fans the only big oh, internet Lord. company that's really funny <laughs> and so he says unless only fans grows equally in its um in its prominence in in internet control as these american companies we are really losing grasp of how european life and economics is is built up and 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 this structure of, of European economics becomes more and more reliant on these American yeah. internet companies. Yeah. Well, it's a very interesting idea. I, what what yeah. I will say about this <laughs> is that um, the, the economists that I like, who are all long dead by now, mm -hmm. what they would say about Lenin and Trotsky and Marx. <laughs> <laughs> 
you are you are you are saying foul things my friend <laughs> but um what they would say for example about information is that you cannot have ideas like you cannot own them mm-hmm. you know when when someone makes uh, a bicycle that doesn't mean that they own the bicycle no one owns the bicycle it's just an idea mm-hmm. and uh carl jung would say that ideas have us and we don't have ideas which i find a really interesting idea and i kind of intuitively agree with it but i think a lot of these companies got so big it's because they could patent their ideas and they could basically say this is my intellectual intellectual ownership whereas they are there are no more than ideas and i think so i think what it has led to is is absolutely disastrous i think in that sense it's true um and it's really something to ponder what it's going to mean for the rest of us but i think a lot of people think the solution is then something which i don't think is going to make anything much better which is like often resentment driven or they want to destroy the rich or whatever it is it it, it often is fueled with a lot of hatred let's say um so yeah i'm not i'm not sure how to fix all of this but i think i i can understand how it went wrong i mean this is really yeah it's an interesting notion that maybe one of the things that sets us apart as human animals from other non-human animals mm-hmm. is the is the ability to come up with these crazy wacky ideas and, yeah. and, and inventions and that when you monetize these or start to protect them as property and start to monetize them like this um that this may be sort of the ultimate capitalist dream that even something as simple as coming up with ideas starts to become monetizable property um which is scary to say it's it's kind of a scary concept um and i wanted to to talk about something something that ties into the to the my uh conspiracy on capitalists forcing women into the labor market um (laughs) which is um uh, I saw. I read a lot of Al Jazeera. I think it's it's an incredibly interesting news platform just because of their their uh, geopolitical position, right? They're okay. they're they come from this country that has a very strong view on how the world should be um, led, and they come up with these news articles that are completely based on Western thought or completely based on Eastern thought. It's very interesting. It's something I don't usually see in the New York Times, which I think is much more grounded within the country and its framework that it comes from. But anyway, I, I read this article, which was, I think, more grounded in kind of the Western monetary way of thinking, which um, which was discussing um, whether India should or shouldn't start to uh, activate the workforce of women in their country. They said there's 600 million, if if not a lot more, women who are inactive on the labor market, which mm-hmm. could have an incredible or lead to an incredible boost in in Indian um, economy, welfare, purchasing power, things like this. Um, and it was a it was a very economically focused article. It spoke about like what this would mean on a geoeconomical scale, what the benefits are for for this labor uh yeah what comes out of this labor if it's good for the economy that kind of kind of thing but in a different way there's also this country which has an an enormous population right the biggest in the world currently um which is not using this western idea of of the labor market um and i wouldn't say india is one of the most prosperous uh, countries in the world in monetary ways but uh, has been functioning like this for a long time yeah um and it's really interesting to see that 
the the place in the world with the biggest population within its uh, borders, uh, so to say, um, is one that does not conform to this Western idea of having to push everyone onto the labor market. And mm -hmm. I'm really interested to see how that's going to play out economically. Yeah. And if this is truly going to be this enormous setback on their economy, if this is going to lead to a lot of problems, if the rest of the world capitalizes more on the amount of people in their workforce, mm -hmm. um, if India is going to be all right, how that's going to turn out, or if they're going to budge under the pressure and go towards pushing all of these women onto the work, onto the labor force as well. Yeah, I think one of the reasons uh, it might work well to not do that is that you do keep producing a lot of um, children and young people. And I think that's one of the biggest problems the West is going to face in the next couple of decades is that people are not having kids anymore as they used to. So you become uh, reliant on immigration and your country is getting older and older and older. Whereas because technology is so difficult to understand for older people, the more younger people you have, I think the more, power you're going to have in that sense. I think India is kind of going to be very strong um, in the next decades. I think what's very interesting is I'm following this guy. He's, he's Indian himself, or at least from Indian descent. And he's saying how many Indians are going to come onto the internet and are already on the internet. Like how big of a percentage that's going to be is absolutely insane. So a lot of people would do well to cater to Indian audiences if they want to do well on the internet. Mm -hmm. I mean, we um, can see this in the rise of T-series already on YouTube yes. as a symbolism, right? Of this being taking over completely Yeah. and and how large that percentage is, yeah. Yeah, so I wonder. I wonder what's going to happen. But I think the idea of, of, of pushing all women on the labor market and everyone pretty much expecting everyone to work is that it goes at a cost of a lot of different things. Um, it's really the absolutization of that, of, of the market, let's say. And I think that also comes forth from, well, things not going very well economically, having a lot of issues. So as the Bitcoiners would say, fix the money, fix the world. <laughs> But I don't think you're there yet when you do that. But I think it's the first step. Mm -hmm. would help. <laughs> so we got to get India on Bitcoin. Is, is <laughs> I'm not sure how it would play out, but I think they would benefit from buying it. <laughs> if, any, if any government uh, people are watching from India... Oh God, this is gonna this are you gonna post this with like crypto bros fix Indian economy <laughs> from their Yes, <bedroom>? absolutely. <laughs> this is our plan. It's a it's a 40 it's did you watch the office? No, I haven't. No. You should watch it. Uh, for the people that have, it's a 40 day plan, 40 days. It's like basically a scene where everything's collapsing within the company and the main guy is like, we're gonna fix everything. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so funny. You should watch the office though. It's it's a strong recommendation. I don't okay. need you to believe in uh, absolute truth or whatever, but what's the office? <laughs> That is the truth. Just kidding. The the American version, not the Yeah, I, I I've tried the British version and I'm sure it's good. It's just it's too slow for me. I'm hmm. I think I'm suffering from a disease where I cannot maintain my uh, attention. <laughs> my attention span has pretty much been corrupted. I heard um Do you know this this geopolitical podcast called Blowback? No. No, that's yeah, that's is that the one I'm thinking of? I think so. Yeah, yeah, it's called Blowback. Um it's a really interesting podcast that 
um, tries to make approachable the way in which the U.S. has demonized uh, Iraq, uh, Korea, and uh, Cuba. Those are the first three seasons. Uh-huh. Um, I'm still listening, and, by the way. I'm putting on my lap, so keep talking. Yes, yeah, sure. Um, and um, they say that the way that the U.K. and the U.S. approach the situation in Iraq is... Um, can be represented by how the office is portrayed by the UK and the US. So like the differences in the in the office between the UK and, and the American office are the same as how they like treated Iraq. And they say like one of their examples is um, that the US um, office has this really like smooth story that leads to like this like climactic buildup and, and mm-hmm. release of tension whereas uh, the uk office just feels completely like cutthroat and just like gets to the point and then moves on um, and they say one of the examples is how um how the u.s tried to like make it seem like oh iraq is now a democracy and go have free elections and whatever and things like that and the uk just said to iraq iraq basically like screw it you have a king now and they said, yeah. like that's basically how like the uk and the american yeah, yeah. office works as well I think it's possible as above so below as they say Mm -hmm. i think in some ways how you do one thing is how you do everything so perhaps i um read this thing about um about the eu because we we briefly just touched on immigration right how if your uh demographic of the country is is becoming increasingly skewed Mm -hmm. that your economy can start to um rely on immigration and in the eu we've seen this kind of um anti-immigration sentiment come to a yeah to a peak or it's or maybe is still leading up Uh, i think it might still be getting worse and worse by the day um and um i saw yuval noah harari you know that the guy who (laughs) says ideas and then spouts them out as if they're truth and then And then and then says, yeah, but because we're monkeys, it's true. Um, yes. <laughs> he he said that one of the interesting things in this discussion uh, about immigration is that we see immigration as a threat to our values, to our European values. And then he says, on the other side, we say that our European values are things like acceptance and tolerance and open mindedness and progress and things like that. And then he says, but but people see immigration as something that threatens our concept of tolerance and acceptance which is very ironic in a sense and he says if we had a true idea of what our european values are if we really knew exactly what those values are um then we could have a much clearer idea on whether immigration is really a threat to this cohesion of society based on these values um and that really made me think what are european values currently or what are what are even dutch values what are yes. things that we could that we value so much for which immigration would be a threat um e- even <laughs> things like polish immigration because people are even opposed to to immigration from poland or from bulgaria or slovenia or romania from the from the eastern european countries people are already opposed to immigration mm-hmm. so uh, what are these dutch values that we are so scared of that that we'll lose when we let let people in from these countries well i think what what people are much more scared of than losing the values i i guess is losing um safety or space or something like that i think it may be something nice to say to maybe mask that and i'm not saying it's not fair to say that that you value safety um and space but i think that may play a much bigger role 
and actually thinking about all this i mean we were talking about values how a lot of our values are quite christian you know mm -hmm. self-sacrifice and all these things i think they're kind of dissipating in the traditional european societies but they're really strong actually like for example in africa africa is like super christian as a continent Some compared parts are definitely yeah yeah like i mean it's it's so wild how but how strongly that is like if you go to to kenya or if you or if you step into uh into a church there it's it's just absolutely wild how much devotion they have compared to us and it, it's actually the europeans went out to colonize people partially with christianity to get rid of the paganism let's say mm -hmm. <laughs> which i mean there are a lot of problems with that yeah and, yeah and, but let's and, use it as a, as a metaphor yeah yes and now it's the people that were previously colonized who are bringing that christianity back i think actually it's going to be a lot of immigrants um that are going to reinstate those traditional values like i don't know people i don't know a lot of people that are more traditionally let's say valuing like absolute truth and morality and all these things and um and and that find it important that that let's say I don't know kids get traditional education, all these things. Then, then immigrants nowadays, like some of the people that are most opposed to modern movements as regarding sexuality, mm -hmm. all these things are Muslims, <laughs> you know. And the mm -hmm. same, same I think with people that are more orthodox in their Christianity, I think they're the ones who are going to keep the values that some people here value so much alive, more so than our population themselves. It's, I mean. I'm in no way addressing any problems. It's just something that I've been that I've been thinking about. Is there anything you want to respond to or uh, thoughts? No, you have I was just far? thinking uh, maybe maybe what we're so scared of in terms of values is getting the values back or pushed onto us that we previously pushed onto yes. other countries. Yes, and, and that we let go of maybe for good reason, maybe for bad reason, but we don't want them back. <laughs> like yeah, that's actually possible. <laughs> yeah, might be and very confronting. It'd be very funny if this, if, if the kind of the colonialist system implodes on itself after hundreds of years, just because we're getting back the things that we thought were such good ideas to push on to other countries. Yes. Not, not that colonialism ever started from this really good idea of bringing any benefit to no. anyone across the world, except for ourselves, of course. But yeah. But it'd be funny if that is the the long term consequences, just getting exactly what we spread back because we're dependent on it for our economy, for example. <laughs> yeah, that's actually possible. It would be a good story. It would be a grand irony. It would be happens. yeah, that's exactly what it is. It I'm not saying be, it's like a happy story, but it's definitely It would be a supreme poetic justice. Yeah. Okay. Are there any other topics you want to introduce or want to continue on? Topics in the past of this conversation that you want to mm, pick back I had, up. I had something that I was thinking about, but I may have to to talk to talk about it later if it if it comes back up. Um, one thing, um, which I, I, I find it really hard to talk about modern conflicts across the world because from any conflict in the past, like past even past hundred years yeah. we're now starting to see some of the historic reasons why things took place and why they took place yeah. in a certain way um 
And so, so the fun part for me is trying to contextualize things that are happening now and wonder what's going on behind the scenes that that is not presented to us as the public. What are the possibilities for these things? And one of the ones that I found really hard to put into context was um, the war in Ukraine when it first started. Mm-hmm. And I tried to reach out to some historians, also from university and some people around, to ask about their opinion on or how to contextualize why Russia would specifically invade Ukraine. Um, and um, so so these things are really fun to speculate about and are very difficult to, to find the truth behind. Um, and I think the biggest piece of the puzzle that we're, that we're missing right now is the political state within Russia that leads to um, to the kind of need or perceived need to start these wars. As in, I have no idea of Russian politics. I think very, very few people have any idea of Russian politics. Yeah. But I wonder if that will turn out to be the biggest piece of the puzzle. The same way we can see that, for example, um, um, one of the big reasons for Bush to invade Iraq, besides the, the privatization of oil fields, of course, um, was also to get his approval numbers up because he had an insane decline of his of his approval. Yeah. And he has the highest recorded approval of any president at any time during the war on Iraq. Um, and another example of this is um, during the Cuba Missile Crisis, which I think is is one of the most fun examples. Well, well, not fun on a, for any of the people involved, but intellectually yeah. stimulating. Mm-hmm. Um, is that... Um, Nikita Khrushchev, sorry to any of my any of your Russian listeners about my Russian pronunciation, but Nikita Khrushchev um, decided in some way to ship the missiles to Cuba in um, secret. Well, I wouldn't say secret, but so, sort of this pseudo secretism, right? He's he mm. didn't communicate it to the Americans at least. Yep. Um, and one of the reasons he did this is because this was in '63. And JFK's election campaign, his next election campaign, was coming up for the year, for the coming year. Um, And so presidents do crazy things. U.S. presidents do crazy things when their election campaigns are coming up Mm -hmm. to make it seem like they are needed, to make it seem like a change of president at that time would would be a disaster because our president is currently so wrapped up in this geopolitical crisis. Um. And so that's one of the reasons, while historically seen right now, why the missiles were shipped to Cuba in in secret, so that JFK wouldn't do anything extremely radical for his campaign in response to uh, to the missiles being shipped there. And that's also seen as as a large um, as a large historical blunder, maybe in in some sense. Um, and these things are really fun to me. Times where politically things have played out in a certain way to get mm-hmm. the approval of the public about things that the public doesn't even know about yeah. uh, or things that the public isn't really even concerned about just for some long-term political strategy mm-hmm. and i really wonder if that's exactly what we'll find out is is what's happening with the war in ukraine if we'll see that this is some kind of long-term political strategy from russian politicians in order to cement their their reign over Russia for a longer period or something yeah. of that of that nature. There's, of course, many. This is already a controversial war, right? The mm-hmm. war in Ukraine. There are many wars going on right now that are yeah. much more controversial, even mm-hmm. um, which we might be better off speaking about in private. Yeah. But um, 
but it's really interesting to me how this how these things happen how these uh decisions get made mm-hmm. I oh think... i just re- oh, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. no you go f- no you go ahead <laughs> well you had another thought about something else perhaps yeah but it's completely unrelated okay <laughs> yeah well i think nothing unifies like a war and i think time will tell indeed although i must say that even with things that have already happened hundreds of years ago people are still getting new interpretations and new insights into them mm-hmm. like sometimes i hear a whole new theory about wars in general mm-hmm. I'm like oh wait up <laughs> perhaps i was wrong <laughs> i i have an interesting one which i i read in um in post war i uh-huh. think by tony Youth. no okay. no it was in a, in a different in a different book uh a peace to end all peace is a okay. long historical analysis of of the role of england in the first world war and the implications on the middle east and um the story goes as, as as follows. It's it's a bit confusing to me as well, so I'll try to, to yeah. explain it with some clarity, which is mm-hmm. one of my weak points is explaining things with clarity. But um, I think it's a strong point. No, that's very kind of you. But so let's put it to the test then. Um, so in um, at the dawn of the First World War, um, Turkey was not an established nation, right? It was part of the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire fell during the First World War. Um, but the Turks uh, or this group of Turkish people had already seized some kind of autonomy over the country of Turkey, which was not a recognized state at the time, but but already started to become a bit of an autonomous zone. And um, the Turks, um, who saw that the Ottoman Empire was likely to fall, needed to cement a way to um, have their country be established, Turkey be established and recognized internationally um, without being part of the Ottoman Empire or without being taken in by one of the major major powers in Europe after the war, during the war. Um, so they had a crazy plan, which I need to, to, to say clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, but some some sibilance of what happened is it comes now so first they um sent an order to the united kingdom to construct a large um war vessel so a, a large ship uh, as part of their navy a, a, f- a flagship to to really cement their presence within the mediterranean and really be a, a naval power mm-hmm. Um, so they had paid for this order and were receiving it, but this was at the dawn of the war. So they knew that there was a risk that the ship would be repatriated by the UK and and put into the the England's army uh, for the war. Um, so they tried two things. They tried to get the UK to recognize them as an independent country of Turkey and, and uh, protect them during the war. Um, partially because of this purchase, because they would have their own vessel, their own navy, so they would be able to defend themselves. And then with the help of Britain, they could be a part of the war and be protected uh, against other foreign forces. Um, UK was not very interested. So they tried the same thing with Germany. And uh, a lot of talks happened between um, members of, uh, of the Turkish Congress at the time or committee uh, and uh, German spokespeople. And um, eventually, uh, from some of the notes, we can see of these meetings that have been mm-hmm. uh, found out by by archaeologists and historians. Um, they say that Germany was only willing to protect Turkey um, if it had any 
hard to play in the war, if it had any, had anything on a military skill to offer, if they could have something of a navy to, to show up or, or something of a ground force or anything like that, if they could offer anything to the war, then Germany would be willing to protect them during the first war and also recognize them as an independent nation. So what they did is they promised Germany that um, the ship that was being made in England would be on the German side during the war effort, knowing that there was a chance that England would keep that ship for themselves. So they promised the Germany that that ship would be part of the German side of the war. And then when the war actually broke out, Germany had recognized Turkey as an independent nation and said, we will protect Turkey as an independent nation. And then after that, that ship got repatriated by the English. So mm -hmm. that ship never actually ended up being part of the war on the on the German side. And the Turks very cleverly used that as a bargaining chip to be recognized as a country, even though uh, they knew that England would keep it for themselves. Wow. So so one of the ways that Turkey cemented its its place on the on the world podium is by this deceitful bargaining over this place of their navy within the first world war that's it's, cool it's it's a very convoluted story but it's really interesting when you think about how some of the countries in in the mediterranean and the middle east were formed uh in interaction with western powers they all have such interesting stories of how they came to be yeah um that we're now also partially finding out more and more about as as the public about how these nations bargained for their own existence or were forced into their own existence by interaction with western powers and sometimes by very clever actions on on their end mm. it's so odd to think you um you it's so odd to think how some of these nations are so young like i didn't know turkey was <laughs> yeah because you know? yeah prior to it, it was just the ottoman empire yeah. so so none of the countries in that area existed as as individual entities yeah, it's like the nation states in general, it's, it's quite a new concept. Mm -hmm. and I think sometimes it's very easy to think that what is there now will be there forever. But if history tells us anything, it won't last super long. Uh, yeah, well, Ukraine is maybe one of the best examples of that, which had been part of the USSR. And then when it fell apart, became its own nation with, with elections and then has basically been a country for at most... 30 years i would say i'm not very sure on the timeline after the fall of the ussr but yeah but in that sense is very young as a modern state of course the the nation of ukraine outlives the nation of russia in in its age before the start of the ussr but mm -hmm. but but as a modern country it's in incredibly young yeah i read a book that thinks that that writes about the idea that nation states will dissolve more and more and that we're going to see more and more small states due to the, well, due to, partly due to technology because technology seems to decentralize things. Like you no longer have to necessarily be in a city to work, to work there. You can do a lot of things remotely. So people will like spread out over different places and we could see this new lay of the land where you get more like you had in the middle ages, you know, like little, small, smaller city states let's say i wonder i wonder if that if that's ever going to come to fruition but it's personally interesting... i would love to found one to start a oh, yeah. city state somewhere what would you call it um i don't know um you have any suggestions i was thinking brazil for the location <laughs> so so maybe something in, in portuguese but um yeah 
but I've always been very attracted to the idea. And, and one of the reasons why, I've, why I find it so interesting is because of the idea that in the past, billionaires and millionaires, well, they weren't necessarily called that back then, but aristocrats, let's just say, were um, very involved in enriching or or putting more luxury into the area around them. You see this in statues and things in the city that celebrate people or, or the pavement and the buildings and areas were absolutely gorgeous just because the rich people that live there put so much money into that surrounding yeah. area. And um, I think we see that a little bit less now. I don't think um, it doesn't really seem like uh, ASML's chief executive officer is really putting money into pavement in Eindhoven, for example, yeah. right? Things like that. Yeah. They're putting money into development of technology, definitely. But uh, they seem less obsessed with showing their luxury in a completely public setting by yeah. making the city beautiful. I would love to see if we're going to have these parasitic uh, billionaires that are living off of forcing women into the labor force, let's just say rhetorically, um, <laughs> then at least have them put some pretty street lanterns in the street and things like that and and some nice statues and, and canals and stuff like we used to say in the old days. So in that sense, I would love to form a city state and then I would be forced to have a, a rich aristocratic class because that's always seemingly the way that these nation states go towards. Then at least I would want to have some legislature where they would be forced to make it beautiful. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, so that's my goal for my own city state is to... Okay is to have legislature that forces rich people to, to tend to the surrounding area instead of like what Jeff Bezos does in Rotterdam is force us to break down our, our monuments in the harbor so that his mega yacht can pass through and then never see it again. Right. Yeah. I want the, I want the exact opposite. I want okay. him, I, I want Jeff Bezos to build a second monument next to the one that he wanted to break down and then, and then another 10, <laughs> that's what i want billionaires to do is just build monuments everywhere yeah they got the capital i think it would be nice i think honestly I'm, I'm never sure about this but i heard someone say once that the more you tax in a country the less tax revenue you're gonna have let's say okay. do you know what i mean so in in a way perhaps if you would if you would do less of that you would get more and you could you could have a more beautiful place. I'm not sure if that holds true everywhere, but I think it's at least an interesting idea to play with, because it's this idea of like, oh well, if we only scrape off the top of what they earn, we would be better off. But then we'd probably just leave because nowadays you can, you know, like back in the day you're more tight. That that, that ties into the the theory I was just mentioning. Like the more decentralized you are, then the more states, I guess, like city states, mm -hmm. smaller states or nation states even have to appeal to people with with that. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that's going to happen. Well, we've seen it a little bit in Brexit when we've seen two huge Dutch companies or partially Dutch companies relocate mostly to the UK, like yeah. uh, Unilever and, and Royal Dutch Shell, which yeah. have mostly pulled off of the Dutch market now yeah. or in large part. So yeah, it it is definitely true. It also can go the the opposite way, which is interesting. Remember the whole thing about dividend taxation in the Netherlands, uh, and so for any non-Dutch people or people who don't read, um, uh, who don't read every word that Mark Rutte says, <laughs> uh, our previous prime minister, um, 
he put an end to tax on dividends and for some people some extra clarification dividends are um if you own a lot of shares some shares pay out dividends which are part of a company's revenue or profit um so you could have 40 bucks in kpn and they make a, a million dollars that year and then you get uh, a percent of that based off of how many shares you have and then you pay taxes over that so the netherlands got rid of this tax which was something like one and a half billion in in government revenue each year and the idea behind this or ju the justification behind this was that this was necessary to ensure an a climate of investment in the Netherlands that was really hospitable to foreign investors so that a lot of companies would come to us because they don't have to pay tax over dividends here and then they would want to stay in the Netherlands and become billionaires here and, and all that. Um, I think that's definitely an example of how that could work, but it's yeah. also an example of how it didn't work. Um, uh -huh. A lot of these companies came forward and say, we don't care about this at all. This did not impact us in the slightest uh, yeah. way. And of course, it's worth wondering whether that's even true, because how many times do companies actually say what they mean, especially companies like Shell, right? Oh, yeah. Um, but still, but yeah, it's very it's very interesting to see if creating this hospitable environment to billionaires is really effective and which things are truly effective towards creating this environment and which things are just kind of populist rhetoric. Yeah. I think the best thing to do is to just try out. Well, if you really want to find out, you got to try out different ways different methods you know mm -hmm. so if different countries do different things then you can see what actually works the best because you can argue about systems all day long like what do you think works best or what what makes people prosper the most or most peaceful um but yeah trying it out because the the biggest answer is just i don't know <laughs> mm -hmm. you don't know and we don't know and we can only know if we start trying it out and even then at least you get closer to the truth i guess so you had the scary a... thing is that we have to start doing that though, because we have so many changes in the in the structure of our economy and and, yeah. and in what really makes money in the world and what really creates value. And maybe our government system or changing government system cannot really keep up with that change in economical structure. So I guess we got to start trying things <laughs> before half of us are unemployed because of automation of our jobs and. And the system is still relying on pushing people into the labor force. So I guess we better get the work and uh, try some try some things. Yeah. I wonder. Some people are like super optimistic. Others think everyone's going to die. I'll see. But I think usually the best thing you can do is just um, be good mm -hmm. to the people around you. Yeah. Hopefully it, rip good... it ripples yeah. out. Two good quotes, yeah. There's the quote, 99% of predictions about the future are wrong, including this one. <laughs> and and the other one is, is I think I mentioned it last time, the Marx Aurelius quote is, stop um, discussing so much what it is to be a good man and just be one. Yeah, exactly. I think that's beautiful. Women and, and non-gendered or others included, of course. But that's not what Marx Aurelius said. <laughs> uh, I think he said it to himself, maybe yeah that's fair. probably so yeah and, think, and then there a layer of translation went over it as well yeah i think you had a thought at some point and then we went on a tangent about the war thing yeah i commented on the war thing and they said no it's, it's completely unrelatable do you remember what that was or did we already mention it um yeah uh it, it was it was exactly completely unrelated but it's related to trying political things okay 
Um, and what I wanted to talk about, it, it tied into immigration more as well. Yeah. Um, so maybe this can pull the whole thing together <laughs> and it, it won't just be yapping. We'll Full actually circle. have something. Uh, yeah. Awesome. Um, I'm really curious what will happen politically within the political climate of the Netherlands um, after this current round of elections, because so many people voted out of protest for the current state of politics. Um, and it's really difficult, I think, or for me at least, to see through the fog of what the result of a vote out of protest is. I think one of the big outcomes of this could be, one of the potential outcomes is a lot of people vote um, relatively to the right or far right in Dutch terms um, out of protest. Um, and then the far right would form a cabinet and then they would vote on on things in the Netherlands and then they would see that it just forms another typical Dutch cabinet, another typical Dutch environment, just with mm -hmm. a slightly skewed political center. Um, but essentially the same governing structure would still be in place, the same way that people vote about uh, what should be implemented or not. So you vote out of protest for a completely different party, which probably will have the result that not a lot drastically would change i i think that's what i would predict i don't think that yeah. voting out of protest for a far-right party is really a gateway to creating a large amount of political change in the way that the political system is built up mm. so i really wonder if people who vote out of protest will keep voting out of protest because the vote that they previously made out of protest didn't do anything as if yeah. they voted far right and then far right became the majority and they formed a cabinet and nothing can change because there's still complete political opposition and polarization. So then they vote far right again and far right again, just different parties out of protest every time more and more protest, more dissidents in voting Yeah, with maybe very little return on investment, let's just say. Well, uh, a win-lose game is always a lose-lose game, if I uh, remember to quote correctly. And I think I think <laughs> oh just some some someone oh some very some, ra wise. some random investor person probably oh, oh Donald Trump uh, <laughs> I think it, no <laughs> no but it's it's this idea of like you know tit for tat mm -hmm. if you play if you play the the game theory thing out and you always just do the tit for tat thing an eye for an eye mm -hmm. or tooth for a tooth and everyone ends up blind and without teeth <laughs> <laughs> and and then the blender industry will be booming. Yes, exactly. Yeah. No, I think it's an idea. Like if you always do things out of protest or if you always do the negation instead of the creation or the criticize or the criticizing instead of the creation, um, then you're not building on anything. I think it's kind of losing a center if you're always responding to something, let's say. Mm -hmm. I think what it will take to um, bring balance back into the world is the avatar was supposed to do before he passed away well we're really coming full circle huh so coming full <laughs> circle um that's yeah, to build something beautiful and true and good <laughs> and i think it's to connect people and that's not easy these days for sure but i think it's a it's an ambition worth having mm -hmm. and then hopefully speaking about politics which i don't do a lot of but hopefully then democracy can become a system in which I don't know if you know this term it's called uh, opponent processing and it's this idea that well if you apply to democracy that the left and the right help each other let's say mm -hmm. like uh, the same with competition you know 
Oh, so it's, yeah, okay. The best, the best teams uh, competing against each other makes both of them better, mm-hmm. and so and and there's cooperation involved in that sense because if if it wasn't for the other side of things, then what is the point? Mm-hmm. I think that that idea should be paired with the idea of broad coalition, which is that. Um, <laughs> Uh, I heard this idea in Bernie Sanders' speeches. I'm really exposing myself as a, as a as a strong leftist now, but um, <laughs> is that the political left is constantly very divided in its ideology, um, and um, kind of o- its only common denominator is is hate for the far right. But ideologically, it's a, it's a very divided field. Um, and that we need to build these broader coalitions. We need to focus on the things that we agree with in order to form a stronger front to actually be a strong team, like you said. And and then if the other kind of political side could do the same, then we actually have two strong teams who have a strong foundation of ideology to, to kind of discuss with each other instead of just having all these divided, weak islands that cannot consolidate and cannot really form any basis for discussion. Yeah. Yeah, it must be sad. I mean, if the one thing that binds people is hatred, then there's clearly something wrong, I feel, especially if it's hatred of others. I mean, that's what we're seeing being played out on on a world scale so much. I'm I'm you I'm constantly kind of dancing around the Palestine thing, but for example, in Myanmar with <laughs> in Myanmar and the Rohingya, where 1.4 million Rohingya were exiled or murdered out of the country based on this idea of hatred is we're, we're seeing this on a scale just as large as it has ever been or or a similar scale of, of throughout all history so yeah we re- i think we need to really be careful not to fall into that into that pattern into that mm. fallacy of of building our politics on that idea yeah i wonder how i wonder in what way we could have the most wisdom let's say making these decisions but i say all of this while at the same time thinking that i think the, the political um, area will become less and less powerful i think it's um it's this idea that i think rulers have more to say now and i think perhaps they get even more to say in the short-term future but i think that on the long term it's actually going to to dissipate more and more if if it's aligned with this theory of, of decentralization let's say where central power becomes more and more disintegrated but i wonder because you know we spoke about marcus aurelius perhaps a man we could call wise if it wasn't for uh him handing the reins over to what is it ne- his, his nephew Thomas. or his son yeah his, son? his adopted son i think yeah yeah if, if only he didn't do that perhaps he would really be a great man but i wonder <laughs> i wonder how we could how we could be as wise as possible. How do you even reward that? Because I think right now, if you really want to become elected, you run on, on hatred, you know? Or like, um, well, it's, whatever it's is popular. In, it's worked in the Netherlands, but it's, and it's worked in a lot of areas around us. It's worked in the, in the UK and England as well. And, but it, it hasn't worked in Brazil for the last election, which has been a refreshing turnaround. Them electing Lula again, who's a candidate that is not necessarily focused on on a campaign of hatred does show that it is definitely still possible to have this political orientation that is still focused on progress and unity and the betterment for the people instead of kicking other groups out and, and dividing and, and things like that. I'm Pres- happy that we're still seeing it. Hmm? Presidential Lula. 
Yeah. <laughs> so I don't like listening to things about politics, but just for my for my Portuguese, I listen to this Brazilian thing. Mm-hmm. I don't find the topics interesting because it's always about Brazilian politics or whatever. And I always hear them uh-huh. say, Presidential Lula. Yeah. It's so nice. Yeah. I love. I just love this language. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, that's good. I don't know much about that, but if it's uh, if it's more of a unifying way of speaking, then I'm all for it. Mm-hmm. And I hope that it instills and ripples out into the rest of the world. It would be beautiful. We're all humans after all. I don't know. Are there other topics you want to touch before we close it? Um, not anything related to anything we've talked about. That's beautiful. That's One last I like. thing I would love to say is um, that I would really love it if people were more accepting of dogs in public places. Oh, there we go. <laughs> but the, maybe that's, uh, well, that's not going to make for an interesting topic for next time. But maybe something for listeners to think about. Next dogs time you, give, you see a dog, give give him a pet. Give him. You have a dog, dog in your apartment there, or no? I have a dog sitting on my lap. Oh my goodness, <laughs> people! You have to tune in on the video. <laughs> and he has been begging for attention during this whole thing, saying, "Please, please give me some love." You can also see my desk. Get some good feed. Yeah. Amazing. Well, I, I will let you tend to him or her. Yeah, him. Yeah. It's What's him. his name? He's called Roni, and it's um, short for macaroni. Because when I lived in the U.S., all I would eat was macaroni. And then I thought, if I move back, and I can have so much of a higher quality of life and eat other things. So then, in respect to those times, I called him macaroni. Amazing. Well, I hope to catch you in the gym soon again. If yeah. you're still there, are you still going? I still go. Yeah. In the gym. Mm-hmm. In the Hague. Yeah. When do you Same go? Gym. Uh, in early mornings when they open. Ah, okay, that's why I never see you. I just expose myself not as a leftist, but as a non-early gym goer. Oh, that's that's <laughs> maybe even worse. I don't know which is worse. <laughs> Thanks for your time, Tajira. I hope to speak mm-hmm. again soon. Yeah. Thank Have you so much. Have a good evening. Yeah, Tend to Roni too. very well. Yeah, Thanks for your I time. Will. Yeah, and I'll continue yapping to him awesome. <laughs> about anything that comes up. Have a good one. Yeah, you too. See you around.